reading is from Ecclesiastes. We'll be reading part, the first part of chapter 3. In your pew Bibles, it's on page 473. Page 473 in your pew Bibles. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 1 through 17. Verse 1. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. Whatever has already been, whatever is, has already been. Whatever will be, has been before. And God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. May God bless the reading of his word. Through the book of Ecclesiastes, there's one question that comes to our mind every single time we take a look at the passage of Scripture. And that question is simply this. How do you make sense of what seems like meaningless life? So as I ask that question, I want you to think about it for a moment. How do you make sense of meaningless life? Now, as you think about that question, I think some of you are beginning to figure it out. Some of you are beginning to see through the message of Ecclesiastes and to come to some conclusions in your own life about what does this book mean for you? What is God teaching you through it? And how is your life adjusting in light of it? So I want to ask three people to come up here and share in no more than two sentences. How do you make sense 
of meaningless life. So I need three volunteers. And since I don't have my glasses on, I'm pretty blind. So you're going to have to raise your hand really high um, if you want to come up. But I want three volunteers. You can be young. You can be medium. You can be old um, like me. We don't have too many people old like me, but you can be anything in between. Come on up. We've got one and I need two more. How do you make sense of meaningless life? Two more volunteers. If you don't volunteer to come up, I'm going to assume that you really need my message today. (laughs) But uh, we have one volunteer. I need two more. Don't scratch your hair. You will be anointed to come on up. Okay, come on up. We have um, a second person coming up to tell us how you're making sense of meaningless life. We need one more. We've got a lot of people awake on this side of the congregation. What about you guys over here? Okay, come on up. You're the next contestant on The Scripture is Right. Okay, now you all come up. Stand next to me. And Okay, let's do this from youngest to oldest. Who's the youngest here? You're the youngest? Okay, who's medium? I'm 20. Okay, okay, all right. So, we're going to do... Young, medium, and a little bit older. Okay. So, I want you to share your name, and in two sentences or less, share how you make sense of meaningless life. Um, I'm Paul, and I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Thanks for sharing that. (laughs) Um, I'm Jalissa, and I think that life without God is meaningless, but God redeems the brokenness of the world and gives it meaning, because we're doing it for him, so. Oh, wow. That that was awesome. (laughs) Say it a little bit slower and a little bit louder. That was awesome. I want everybody to hear what you just said. I don't remember. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, I'll let you hear what you just said. God makes sense of the meaninglessness of life because he redeems the brokenness. Was that close? Chabudola. Okay, close enough. All right. Okay. Yeah, I don't know how to talk that. (laughs) My name is Brandon, and... um, yeah, there is no meaning apart from God. I think those who... There's a book that I read one time, Tolstoy's Confessions. Yeah, I know, I'm trying to. I'm sorry. That those who have a meaningless life um, think that they come from nothingness. They are nothing, a head towards nothingness. So to try and make meaning out of meaninglessness is self-destruction, I think. Oh, okay. So, sounds like you've been living in Ecclesiastes. Thank you all. Um, What we're doing as we continue our study is every single week we're taking a look at the scripture and we're saying, how do we figure it out? Take your Bibles, grab, grab it, open it. Ecclesiastes chapter three. We've just heard it read. And the first principle, you'll see that I have eight uh, points on my outline today. I plan on hopefully getting through six. Don't worry if I only get through two. Um, what happens, happens. If you don't hear it all today, you'll hear it some next week. But what I want you to do is put yourself in the perspective of the teacher who wrote Ecclesiastes and then ask yourselves this question. How is he trying to make sense of meaningless life? And then come right to verse one of chapter three. And you'll see that the first way that he tries to make sense of meaningless life is by saying that God has appointed a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. In verse two, 
What we have is something that none of us have any control over in most instances. The time of your birth and the time of your death. There's a time to be born and a time to die. And the writer to Ecclesiastes is looking at the world and he's seeing the patterns of things as they are and as they appear. And from that, he's drawing conclusions and helping us figure out how to make sense of our lives. But the first thing he says is that there was a time for you to be born and there's going to be a time for you to die. And unless you take matters into your own hands and kill yourself, which I pray to God none of you will ever do, though I know that at times many of you might have thought about it for whatever reason. The time of your birth, the time of your death is in the hands of the Lord. There's a time to plant and a time to uproot. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. Now, what strikes us when we come to a verse like verse three is, is this is the Bible saying that there's a time to kill. Doesn't the Ten Commandments say thou shalt not kill? So then what is the time to kill? What is the time to heal? And we're reminded that even in the scriptures, there are times where capital capital punishment in the Old Testament was meted out. For certain offenses, we're we're reminded in the time of war that there's times where to defend God's people in the Old Testament, they went to war and they even had to kill on behalf of what God had told them to do. But the scripture tells us that there's not only a time to kill, there's a time to heal. Verse three, a time to tear down and a time to build. Most of you here lived through the big dig. Um, I didn't live through the big dig, but I got up this morning and I'll tell you how I spent my extra hour. Uh, it took me 15 minutes to figure out had my clock automatically readjusted um, or and so I had an extra hour or had it already updated and I really didn't have that hour. But in any case, I ended up with an extra hour and I went on YouTube and what I was um, looking at, which I was really happy uh, to find, was a little commentary, actually it went on for an hour, on the big dig. Everything connected to the big dig. I'm now the expert on the big dig. Um, the big dig took $15 billion, took place over 16 years, And in order to build these tunnels that they built, and it was really amazing to see what they did and how how they did it, they had to tear down first 20,000 structures in order to then build what they built and get rid of what they had to get rid of in order to increase the transportation efficiency of the city of Boston. An amazing thing that happened. But notice that just like the scripture says in verse three, there was a time to tear down and then there's a time to build. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. Um, Think about the time of weeping with me for a minute. But before you think about what makes you weep, let me share with you a little bit of what makes me weep. Can we have the first um, first slide? I've got three slides I want to share with you. Um, This is my first monitor lizard. His name his name was Dino. And this was Dino on his first day of life in our house. Dino smiling, looking over the plastic. Let's look at the next, the next slide. Um, this is Dino in Daddy's pocket, um, uh, about to go to school with Dad. Um, I even preached in Stephen Tong's church with Dino in my pocket, and occasionally I'd bring him out, and people would think you are the weirdest pastor we have ever had in the pulpit. Um, but I loved Dino very, very much. Um, Dino was my pal. Let's see. I have one more picture of Dino. 
This is Dino on the day that Jakarta flooded, and we went out to take a look at everybody. And but Dino was still smiling. Okay. Now with a lizard like this, you do a lot of laughing, a lot of smiling, and not a lot of weeping. But one day we were going to church, and Evie's like, "Hey Tim, Dino doesn't look too good." I'm like, "Okay, let's just pray and let's go to church." And we came back, and Dino was on his last breath. And I picked up Dino, and he looked at me, and he died in my hands. People, I cried. I cried for like. Six or seven days. Um, our housekeepers cried nonstop for for three days, um, and then they buried him. They put him in a little plastic bag, and then we dug up the flowers in the front front yard in Indonesia, and then we covered it up and we buried Dino in the plastic bag. And a few weeks after that, our housekeepers dug him up because they thought his spirit was stuck in the plastic bag. But whatever. But the point is, is that we all wept, and we wept, and we wept again. And it was funny because I compared how we wept over Dino with how we wept over when when my mom died. I was in the room with my mom when she died, and I heard her breathe her last breath. And I went over and I took my hand, and I pushed her eyelids down, and I looked at her. And brothers and sisters, I have to confess to you that I didn't cry, and I still haven't cried over my own mother dying. And you ask me why I didn't cry. The reason was is I had such a sense of the peace of God because she was a believer and the presence of the living God that there was no way for me to look at a dead person and think anything other than hallelujah. Our Lord reigns. He's alive. And one day I'm going to see her again. And she's released from pain. And so there's a time to weep, which is when your monitor lizard dies. Um, and then there is a time to laugh. Now, unfortunately, I'm one of those people that sometimes laughs when you should be weeping, weeping when I should be um, laughing because I'm weeping too hard. But um, there is a time to laugh. Um, and we praise the Lord that there's a time to laugh. When is the time to laugh? Can someone can somebody say in one sentence, when's the time to laugh? If you get it right, I promise I'll bring you chocolate next week. But can anybody um, answer the question of there is one correct answer to when is it the right time to laugh? Anybody want to? Not not always, because the Bible says actually there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, because always is not the correct answer. You get no chocolate. Someone in the back. What? I. Okay, when you feel joy, that's close enough that I'll bring you chocolate next week, but it's not quite uh, the answer I'm looking for. The answer is this. When is the time to laugh? It is when dad or your husband tells a joke. Ladies, you're supposed to laugh. Kids, you're supposed to laugh. Okay, you were supposed to laugh then and you didn't. Um, When the preacher attempts a lame joke. But what the writer to Ecclesiastes is doing is, is he's showing us the whole of our life. All of your life is not weeping. All of your life is not laughing. All of your life is not tearing down. All of your life is not building. Notice verse five, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Now, I know that some of you are like handshakers. Hey, bud, how's it going? Others of you are like backslappers. Hey, 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 how you doing today? Some of you are huggers. I saw it in the back today. Hey, how are you? And then there's a great hug for a long time. In our house, the time for embracing is in the morning when we're standing in the kitchen and we're getting tea because I start my day with tea and that's when I go over to Evie and I give her a big hug and today I gave her a big hug and I, I hug for a little bit too long. She says, we've got to get ready for church now. So, um, <laughs> in the morning is the time for embracing and then, 
Um, shortly after the hug has gone on for about four or five seconds, it's the time to get ready for church. Um, there is a time for both. A time to search and a time to give up. I not only love lizards, I also love dogs. And when we lived in Hawaii, I went to the University of, of Hawaii and I was there during the day and I would come home at night and we left our dog outside during the day because we thought he was safe. He was in an outside fenced um, area and we'd never had any problems with him. All of our neighbors had dogs. Everybody in Hawaii loves dogs. To be Hawaiian is to have a dog and and to love a dog. So we thought it was fine to leave Pedro just Outside, our cute little chihuahua, he's completed 13 international moves. I won't tell you how much missionary, missionary dollars it's cost to move him 13 times. Um, he's 14 years old, and he specializes in foot massage, your foot, his massage. So if you come over to my house, he'll walk over and you can, you can touch him. But he's really a cute little guy. And one day, I come home, and I did my typical, Hey, Pedro, Pedro, and I heard nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So I called out again. Hey, Pedro, Pedro. Nothing. And now I'm beginning to worry. So I go into the fence and I look around and there is no dog. And then in what was probably the longest minute of my life and one of the worst moments of my entire existence, I contemplated the reality that my dog was gone. And I started searching. And I was not going to stop until I found him. So the first thing I did was pray and recruit prayer. I called my, my friends, the Dillies, on, on my cell phone, long distance in Taipei. And I said, you guys need to pray because I just came home and Pedro isn't there. And they're like, shock. <gasps> Where's Pedro? Didn't know where Pedro was. I had no idea. Had he run away? Was he dog napped? What, 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 what happened? So I get on my bicycle and I start riding around the neighborhood, just praying and praying and praying and praying. And after about 15 minutes of riding around, I passed one of my neighbor's houses and I just happened to look sideways when I passed and he had his porch, um, which was lit up and there was my dog in a cage. And it's like, Pedro didn't know how to talk back then. Um, he, he didn't know how to bark. It was very strange. He was raised with a cat, so he's not really with the program. Um, he doesn't know what he is. But as I rode by, he didn't bark at me, but his face went up like, like that. And I'm like, oh, Pedro, I was so happy. I searched um, for my dog and I found my dog. And then I paid a $100 ransom for my dog because my neighbor had dog napped him and wasn't and he my neighbor was in the middle of gambling when I walked up to his patio he was in a poker game with four other people and he's like that ain't your dog and I'm like that's my dog and he's like that ain't your dog and I said look dude it's my dog I'll give you a hundred dollars just let me have my dog and he was in the in the middle of the poker poker game so he's like yes so I gave him a hundred dollars and I took my dog back and I was happy because I searched and I found him but then there's a time to give up as well. For example, all the families of the flight of the Malaysian Airlines flight that crashed until this day, nobody knows where it is. And so after searching for years, they finally called off the search. But I heard recently that there's a company that's volunteering to the Malaysian government to continue looking for the plane and they won't be charged the Malaysian government anything unless they find the plane. So there's a time to search and a time 
to give up is lost. There's a time to keep and a time to throw away. We have moved so many times and we have kept so many things and then we've given away so many things that I feel like my life is completely in the second half of verse six. A time to keep and a time to throw away. There's a time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. Now, let's talk about the time to be silent. If I ask you, when is the time to be silent? I think some of you are going to have a quick answer. And the quick answer is going to be the wrong answer. Um, But I think that what I want to point out to you today is that the time when you shouldn't be silent and the time when you shouldn't be silent is when your teacher or your parent or your small group leader or anybody who's in the middle of stimulating a discussion asks you a question and you're supposed to respond. And then you don't respond. That's not the time to be silent. But it happens all too, too many times where there's this like awkward silence. Um, it's happened to me so many times. I cannot tell you how many times. But when the teacher or the leader asks a question, that's not the time to be silent. And the time to speak is not when um, the other person is speaking. This is interesting because as a marriage counselor, I've had a lot of couples come to me with the number one problem in marriage, which is communication. Um, couples have a hard time knowing how to uh, uh, how to get along um, in relationship to talking to one another. So I have a few rules if a couple wants to come for counseling. My rule number one is you cannot interrupt that when one is talking, even if they go on for a long time, everybody else has to listen. And what happens is, is when people have bad communication, the guy starts talking and then his wife says, no, honey, it's not. She doesn't say, honey, she's, she says, no, it's not that way. And then he says, yes, it is. And then they just go on and on and on. And it reminds you of CNN or Fox News or something like that, where four people are talking at the same time and you just want to go, shut up. OK, so so I have I have a few rules for counseling. And one of my rules is you must not interrupt. And here's what happens if a couple interrupts. They get one warning. Don't do that. Remember the rules? You know, he talks, you listen. She talks, you listen. And if they violate the rule one time, I say, get out of my office. Yes, now get out, go home and don't come back until you can master rule number one, because we're never going to get anywhere if you don't do that, because it's so simple. You can't counsel a couple if they can't listen. To one another. So keep in mind from the scriptures that there's a time to be silent and a time to speak. And the time to speak is not when someone else is speaking. There's a time to love and a time to hate. And here we're reminded in the Bible that there are things that God hates. And there are things in life that are so wrong that you ought to hate them as well, even though we're told to love our enemies. So the time to hate is when something happens or someone is doing something that so clearly goes against God's word that you have to do something about it. But just as the Bible says, be angry and yet do not sin, this kind of hatred is not a hatred that leads us into sin. It's a hatred that causes us to move into action, to do something positive, to bring God's kingdom to bear on a situation that's messed up. Verse 8, second half, a time for war and A time for peace. In verse nine, what we have is an interesting question. And I struggled reading this several times this week. I couldn't figure out what does the question mean in light of verse 10 and verse 11. But I think I have it figured out that if I'm wrong, then please feel to correct. Please feel free to correct me next week. But the writer to Ecclesiastes asked a question. He says, what do workers gain from their toil? 
Toil is their labor, their hard work, their hard labor. What do they gain from it? And then in verse 10, which seems to be the beginning part of the answer, he says, I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. Now you're sort of confused. Okay, what do they gain from their toil? Well, then he's saying, what do they gain? They're working hard. They're working hard. In other words, he's still talking about their toil. So verse 10 is actually modifying the end of verse 9, the word toil, and saying, whoa, people are working hard. That is a burden that God has laid upon the whole human race ever since Genesis chapter 3 said that it was going to be hard for us to labor because we were going to try and plant and have to deal with thistles and thorns as well. So our work is tinged with difficulty and it goes right back to Genesis chapter 3. But then he says something interesting in verse 11. And this is the second principle that I think we need to uh, reckon with today as God is helping us make sense of a meaningless life. This, the thing he says in verse 11 is this. God has made everything beautiful in its time. So what's what's he doing right now? He's moving us from simply considering our circumstance to now considering our circumstance from the eternal standpoint of God, who in his own timing will fix everything that's right, that's wrong with this world and the world to come. In other words, in God's timing, he moves us from war to peace. In God's timing, he moves us from hate to love. In God's timing, he makes everything beautiful in its time and even the effects of the fall and the effects of the curse and how that makes our work so difficult. Even one day in the future, when we see our Lord face to face, he will make everything beautiful in its time. So the amazing thing we learn from the writer to Ecclesiastes is there's no way to make sense of your life if you're simply looking at it from a human perspective or from the now of today. You must View your life, your life in light of the patterns that God has woven into the fabric of our lives today. And you must view your your life in light of what God will do in the time where he will make everything right and make everything so amazingly beautiful. Notice what God says. In the second half of verse 11, the third principle is this, as we try and make sense of a meaningless Life, we not only acknowledge that God's planned a time for everything, we not only accept and praise God that he will make everything beautiful in his time. We see in in verse 11, the second half, that God has set eternity in the human heart. So now we're seeing that even though we're living in time, there's something in our hearts that cries out that says this world is not all that there is. And when I stood and looked at my mother right after she breathed her last breath, I was standing between time and her earthly existence and her mortal life in eternity, which was the place and the time to which she passed. Brothers and sisters and friends who came here today, I say that every single one of you, even though you're busy with your jobs, completely overwhelmed with the amount of studying you've got to do, homework you've got to do, chores you've got to do, things that you've got to do in your life to the point that sometimes you don't even think about God, I guarantee you that if you stop and if you put your cell phone down, turn it off, 
Turn off your notifications on your Facebook and stop to think for a minute. You'll come to the same conclusion. You know that you were made by God for eternal life. In fact, we can say that the whole purpose of the Bible, the whole purpose of the gospel is to cause us to contemplate our lives in light of the eternity that God sets in our hearts. So that when we look at death, we say there's something wrong with death. It's wrong. It wasn't supposed to be. Weren't we made for something else? Yes, we were made for something else. And that something else that we were made for is a relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. So we have his love presented to us in the gospel that God loves us enough that he sent his son into the world to die. That whoever believes in him shall not perish. That's not John's way of saying the gospel of John that you won't die in this life. That's saying, no, when you die, that's not the end. You will not ultimately perish. You will have everlasting life through faith in Jesus Christ. As you contemplate the longing that you have for eternity in your hearts today. Do you have that hope that if you were to die today, you would have eternal life? Do you have an unshakable confidence that not even some professor at Harvard can shake from you? That if you leave this world, you go into the presence of our Savior, as Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's what God wants you to have. He has set eternity in your hearts and he's done so um, in such a way that we will contemplate that our God is eternal and we are not. And hallelujah um, for that. Now, my fourth point that I want to share with you from the scripture um, is interesting. Look at verse 13. Oh, excuse me. Beginning in verse 12 In verse 12 and 13, we have another principle. He says, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction and all their toil and labor. This is the gift of God. Remember how I said that as we go through Ecclesiastes, there's always two perspectives. Either this is how it is and it is how it is. Or this is how it should be. This is how your life should be. This is what God wants you to be. Well, what we had in verses 12 and 13 was a switch from it is how it is. There are seasons for everything in life to now this is how it should be. And so the principle of verse 12 and 13 is that God wants you to be happy and to do good um, and to eat and drink and find satisfaction in your work. For this is the gift of God. I know as we've gone through Ecclesiastes that some of you aren't happy, that some of you are depressed. Some of you are so depressed by reading through Ecclesiastes and hearing at least ten times up to now or something. Meaningless. 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 You've heard it so many times that it's beginning to wear on your spirit. And I know that one of the groups... What we shared last week in our small group leaders meeting, one of the groups is not studying um, Ecclesiastes in the small group because there's depressed people in the group and you didn't want to be more depressed. So, OK, I'm with you. I understand Ecclesiastes can be depressing as it talks about life, how it is. But, you know, I realized that there were people in our congregation who had it figured out, who realized that in the midst of the. Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless that we hear over and over. There were people who realized that verse 12 and verse 13 was where God wanted us to be. So I got in my car and I drove to find one of the sages 
of Crossbridge Fellowship. And I found in University of Massachusetts Amherst campus that has the best food of any um, campus in the United States. I found a sage and the sage was willing to share with us what he's learned from Ecclesiastes. So let's hear from him himself. So this is Mr. Justin Alphonse, and he's going to tell us about what place Ecclesiastes has in his life. Okay. Hi. Um, yeah, so we were talking a little bit about uh, depression for a little bit. And I recognized in my life when I was a high schooler, before I actually began going to church, I was depressed based around the fact that life was meaningless, I guess, to put it in the way Ecclesiastes puts it. I realized that no matter what I did, nothing I really accomplished would matter by the time I died, right? That I like came into the world with nothing and I was going to leave with nothing, and regardless of what I did, none of that mattered. Um, and then after accepting Christ, that changed a little bit, but it really hit me when I read Ecclesiastes and I found that the preacher, or uh, maybe King Solomon, whoever wrote it, um, had more reason to be happy with life than I did, um, but was still depressed for the same reasons I was. Um, and I realized two things. One was that I wasn't the only person thinking those things. Um, and then I also realized that he found a reason to live uh, despite those same realizations. He found that um, it's not about the work you do, it's about what you're doing it for, I guess. And it's about glorifying God and finding purpose in that, knowing that what you're doing is meaningless otherwise. Wow, that's awesome. Thanks, brother. Yeah. Enjoy your lobster. Thank you. I already had two. <laughs> That truly was sagacious wisdom from um, Justin Alphonse. Praise the Lord. And what Justin was sharing, and he shared it first, and then I'm like, dude, this is too good. Can I turn on my my, um, video and you share it so I can share it with the congregation? And I did share with his permission. I won't share sermon illustrations or videos that I've taken of you without your permission, so don't worry. Um, But Justin gave me permission um, to video that because it was so moving when I heard it that he had learned that Reading through Ecclesiastes wasn't for the purpose of having him think that life was simply meaningless. It was to teach him how to live and to glorify God in the midst of it. And we have that in verse 12, that there's nothing better for you and for every single person who's ever lived than to be happy. To do good. While you're alive, that you might eat and drink and enjoy the fellowship with your friends and to find satisfaction In your work, because this is a gift from God that in the midst of the difficulty of our work that is described as toil, God wants you to find satisfaction. And you can find that satisfaction if you found Christ and he's in your life. And so everything that you do, you do for him and through him and out of the power that he supplies because his grace is powerfully at work in your lives. Let's move on. There's another um, there's another principle that. Um, We should see from this. And that is my fifth principle is that God's works endure forever for the purpose that all people might fear him. Verse 14, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. When you look out at the works of God and you see the things that are always happening, the seasons that God has has placed into the world, the beauty that we have in our creation, that in the midst of all that, as you contemplate what God has done, realize that it will endure 
But as you gaze upon it, it should lead you into respecting him and to realizing that he is God. This world didn't just happen. How did you come to be in such an amazing way that you have two eyes that see and two hands that grasp or embrace someone and two feet that take you all the places you want to go in your life? Why is it that your nose is just uniquely in the right place and that your eyebrows just amazingly catch all the dust so that you're not always in a position of having something stuck in your eye. Why are you so fearfully and wonderfully made? As you contemplate the works of God, you need to realize that God did it. It's everlasting. And we should fear him as a result. But there was one principle, and this is the final principle I'm going to share in my message today. It comes from verse 15 and verse 16. Whatever is, has already been. And what will be, has been before. And God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every single deed. And so the Lord wants us to see that there's going to come a time where he's going to judge the wicked and the righteous. Now, notice what the writer to Ecclesiastes saw when he looked out in the world. He saw something that troubles you. If you look at the world today, you're going to be troubled. If you do what I do when I get up every morning, which is turn on my phone, go to CNN, see if see if there's been any nuke action between um, us and North Korea. When you do that, you're going to realize that instead of. Righteous things happening in places where authority is that there is actually wickedness in the place of judgment. Wickedness was there in the place of justice. Wickedness was there when we lived in Indonesia. I naively thought that the court systems of Indonesia would work properly and that if someone was falsely accused of stealing something like our housekeeper's daughter was falsely accused of stealing money at work, that all she had to do was trust the lawyers and trust the court systems and she would find justice. And you know what we found? We found that the person who unfairly charged her with with stealing actually paid off the court systems. So our housekeeper found no justice and she was forced by the police to sign a confession about a crime she didn't commit. And when you see stuff like that, you scratch your head. And then if you're a Christian or if you're a thinking person or if you're considering a religion or if you're simply someone who's wise and trying to figure out life, you're going to say there's something that doesn't make sense. There either isn't a God, and that's why this is happening, or there is a God. But if there is a God, he cannot be all powerful and all good at the same time. Because if he was all powerful and is all powerful and is all good, then, of course, he wouldn't let that happen. And a lot of people today try and figure out life that way. They either come to the conclusion as they see Injustice, that there is no God, and that's why everything's as messed up as it is. Or they come to the conclusion that, yes, there is a God, but he doesn't have all power, because if he did, he would eradicate all evil. Or if he does have all power, then he's not all good, or he would eradicate all the evil. Because why would a good God allow sin and allow so much evil in the world? So Ecclesiastes forces us to come up with an answer for that question, an answer that works on our hearts 
an answer that will help us get through our days. And notice that the writer to Ecclesiastes doesn't deny the sovereignty of God. God will judge. He doesn't deny the justice of God. God is just. He doesn't deny the goodness of God. Because what he does, though, is he points us in the same place where the answer is for the struggle that we have in our heads and our hearts. He points us to eternity. There's coming a time where God will both judge the wicked and the righteous. And so our hope is not injustice happening in this world. There will be injustice in this world. And if our hope is that everything's going to go well with the world or to look for a political solution for righteousness to come in all the time and the world is not going to happen in the place of judgment, there is wickedness. And so what we have in this passage is a call for us to see time as it is, to realize we live in it, but to have our eyes pointed to the time where the one who took the judgment for us will be the one who writes every wrong dries every tear and brings in a new heavens and a new earth. Ecclesiastes brings us to look to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the amazing time that is coming, a time that we remember, a time that we even proclaim today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Lord Jesus, we look forward to that time, not only that you came, we thank you for it, but we look forward to the time that you're coming back. And so we thank you, Lord God, that as we're stuck in the middle of a difficult life, seeing injustice, wickedness, hate, sometimes war, when we wish for peace, that we can take our thoughts, our hearts to you and find answers that will help us get through life in a way that has joy, in a way that has meaning and in a way that has purpose. So we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior, who makes it all possible. Amen.